Hey there, and welcome to The Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. On this episode, we'll be talking to Rick Hall, lifetime entrepreneur and CEO of Agenity. We discuss data analytics and starting your own business, all that and much more, coming up on The Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Michael, the IT guy. And hey, on this. Wait, mm-hmm. who the heck are. What are you doing here? Uh, uh, oh, oh, is, Eric, is that you? Yeah. Is that you? Oh, um, I, I just thought it'd be nice to have, like, you know, uh, you know, so a new voice to be in the show. So <laughs> I decided I'd just kind of take over for a little bit, and I didn't see you there. So I guess it's your show. You could, you could have it back right now if you want to. It's fine. Oh, thank, thanks. I, I'm. You're you're in my spot, dude. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is your chair. <laughs> it is my chair. Go go, go oh. find a stool or something. Okay. Oh, I've got plenty of those. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. Let me. I'll, I'll be right back. I'll get one right now. <sighs> okay. I got it. Let's go. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and joining me this episode is Michael Tanell from the Destination Linux Network. Brandon is actually away this week on some business, uh, so I asked Michael to join us. He He's experienced as an entrepreneur and as someone who deals a lot with data and analytics. I thought he would be an excellent addition to our show for today. So welcome to the Pseudo Show, Michael. I'm glad to be here. I've always wanted to be on this show and especially take over for a little bit. So it's really fun. And I'm glad to be here, especially because, as you said, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm really interested in these kinds of topics. So it was very exciting for me to be a part of this episode. For those who don't know, I'm one of the co-founders of the Destination Linux Network and a content creator here on DLN. I'm the host of the This Week in Linux podcast and one of the hosts of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts on DLN, and also an open source enthusiast, though I'd like to prefer to refer to it as open sorcerer. So if you want to take (laughs) that, feel free to do so. I love it. And in fact, Michael has done a ton of work behind the scenes for this show, and he doesn't get nearly enough credit for it. The the logos, the branding, everything. I think I might have mentioned on a, on a Hangout recently that you get what we're trying to, to build here on the show. Over a year ago, when we started talking about launching the show, you immediately said, we, we need you to partner with DLN because this, this is a perfect partnership. And it's, it's been awesome to be a part of DLN. And I'm actually surprised we haven't had you and Ryan on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Right? We should probably have you guys on the show and talk about what DLN is. That would be a good thing that I think would be fun to do, especially with like, you know, having the, you know, the combination of all four of us in that, in that conversation would be fun. And I also was really interested in it because like you said, we've talked about it before we started, you started the show and you came to me asking me for advice, you know, because I've been doing podcasting for a while and all that sort of stuff. And you were just kind of saying, hey, what kind of advice would you have if you would be, can you take a minute to let me know? And I was like, hey, that's a that's an interesting idea for a podcast. You should do it for my network because this is it's something that I've wanted. I'm really interested in the enterprise stuff. And I was, you know, really, really willing to have that kind of thing on my on the network. So when you said that you you were doing this, the idea like the light bulbs popped in my head. It's like I, we ha- we have to have it. And it's been it's great that you you and Brandon join the network because it has been. Uh, so enlightening for you know all these episodes you've done and uh, i hope for this episode that i can help make it even more enlightening for those who are listening yeah well we'll we'll see you you did sit in my chair so you know i was just keeping it warm for you what's wrong with that (laughs) although i will say this has been an awesome uh, set of relationships with with dln with all the creators i mean we've been on the same page pretty much the entire time prime example of that would be when we were talking about branding and wanting a logo, I gave Michael the most vague idea of what I had in my head. I wanted something that that showed the terminal, but I wanted something simple, something very modern looking. I told him I wasn't particular on on colors or style or anything. And within a couple of days, I think you came back with, with the logo. And I don't think we've made any changes to it since. And the moment that I saw it, I was like, yeah, that, that, that's, <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I asked for. Yeah, I remember our conversation about it. You said, I, I have an idea, this sort of thing. And I was like, I, I got this. I got this. <laughs> and I'm glad I did have it because I was, you know, because I remember having an idea and you're like, uh, I don't really know exactly how I wanted to be like, oh, I've already got an idea with this conversation. We're, we're good. We're good. <laughs> and for the, the fact that, that it, 
was a you know it worked out for what you wanted is is it was very exciting for me because when I, I've done logo design for a long time, you know, for those who don't know, I'm also a designer and I've you know done marketing and that sort of stuff in in like a business world, and I have uh, created logos for all sorts of different uh, companies and projects and whatnot, and it's rare that I nail it on the first try, but it's <laughs> wonderful when I do. So when you were you were super excited about it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is perfect then. Because this is exactly what I was hoping it would be like the vibe for. And now then we started doing like, you know, like how do we do the animations and the branding and whatnot about the video version and the waveforms, all that sort of stuff. It's been just great to be able to, you know, collaborate with this show uh, as part of DLN and just a part of the, you know, the community in general, because, you know, the pseudo hangouts are fun to be a part of and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, you you nailed the branding right off the bat, and that branding has extended from from pseudo show to to pseudo labs to pseudo hangouts. You're one of our most frequent uh, attenders on on hangouts, and just uh, it's it's great to have you on the show today. Oh yeah, I'm I'm excited to be here. So without further ado, let's uh, let's dive in. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc., and together they've ensured that you will get access to all the latest releases of the Mongo database as they become available. As a listener of the Pseudo Show podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash dln mongo. Need more than just a database? You can use your $100 credit to try out all the amazing services DigitalOcean has to offer. Again, go to do.co slash dln mongo to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. Rick Hall is the owner of Agenity and is an a repeat offender in the entrepreneurial world and uh, has a lot of experience in the software uh, development world. So really glad to have you on to, with us uh, today, Rick. Yeah, Eric, thank you for having me. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got started in technology? Yeah, sure. So I guess it's kind of a, a roundabout way, right? So when I got out of college, I was really interested in the public world and got involved in associations and ultimately in kind of the management and membership for a nonprofit. And what I found myself involved in was this kind of problem of how do you maintain members and grow members? And uh, that turns out to be a data and analytics problem, right? And so I went from, you know, kind of thinking mostly about the nonprofit world to thinking about, you know, kind of data and membership. And that kind of got me into the software world. And I landed in that space in the early days of uh, data warehousing and, you know, kind of what is now kind of big data. And I've kind of been there ever since. So I worked in consulting. I've uh, done a couple of different startups. I've been able to see a cut, two out of three end up with successful exits and sales. And uh, now I'm here doing it uh, a fourth time uh, with Agenity. You just can't get enough. I, yeah, I can't get enough. Like, <laughs> it's for punishment, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very clear sign when someone is really an entrepreneur, not just someone in, like trying to be one, but that it's in their blood when they have so many different ones. And once they, they sell one of their companies, they just can't stop, got to keep making more or you know jump into other ones. So you talked about Agenity. Uh, tell us a little bit about Agenity. What, do you, what services do you offer and what, just a little bit about the history of it as well. Sure. So Agenity is a software company and uh, we're focused on the analytics market. And really what we do is we provide tools that help a kind of a non-technical business person use big data and use it in their business and access big data platforms, right? So, you know, increasingly, uh, companies have large amounts of data. Maybe in the past, you could have manipulated all the data you cared about in Excel, you know, where today, you know, you might be in a business where there are kind of terabytes of data sitting in all these corporate systems. And instead of having to call a bunch of engineers to get them to program what you need, uh, we provide tools that let business people do it themselves. Basically, you you got involved in associations and different groups of people, and you found a business problem. You worked your way all the way from just being a member of these different associations to starting not one, not two, but four different businesses to solve this 
particular problem. With that in mind, is that kind of the big need in technology right now? Yeah, you know, you kind of, when you put it that way, you think, what is this idiot, right? It takes him four times to get it right. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Uh, the, uh, don't, don't share that with my wife, by the way. The, uh, uh, it's uh, so, you know, kind of, I mean, obviously technology keeps changing, right? And when I started, you know, kind of my interest in data was about the problem of how do you maintain members? And I kind of played around with computers all the way back to high school. So I was kind of, you know, knew something. But the basic problem of loading membership systems and being able to figure out how do you renew your members turns out to be a, an analytic problem, right? You know, and it was that interest in that analytic problem that got me involved in analytics. So I've always kind of sat at its intersection of the business problem and the technology that intersects with that problem. And so, you know, it turns out there's a lot of those intersections, right? And they keep kind of changing. And so when I decided to make the move from the nonprofit space to just pr- pursue that idea, I joined an early stage consulting firm and there were five people at the firm and, uh, you know, they were small enough firm to be willing to take a risk on somebody who had no computer science degree. This is back in the, you know, the time of early telco after the breakup of AT&T. So now I'm aging myself and we had kind of a successful run. We you know built that firm to uh, well over a hundred consultants. I became a partner. And it was kind of a cool way to get into the space because as a consultant, you got to see a lot of different business problems, right? And so we worked in consumer goods and we worked in retail and we worked in financial services and we worked in telco. And, you know, there's just a whole variety of different interesting problems there. And while I was doing that work, it was kind of right at the time when Microsoft decided to dip their toes into analytics and what has become a big part of their business. And they were looking for kind of consultants who were in the space to sit on an advisory panel to look at the problem. And we had been working on a really interesting problem around, around risk and financial services. I got invited and I got involved. And then I had this stupid idea that, that consulting, we could actually productize what we were doing. And that became the basis of, of founding the first startup where I was just the you know CEO with a couple of partners. And that was G4 Analytics. And you know, we founded this company on September 10th, 2001. So we had this big dinner in Seattle. We were working with Microsoft at the time. All the funders were there committed to everything we're doing. You know, I went back to my hotel. I got up the next morning, went for a run, walked into the hotel and watched the planes crash into the World Trade Center. And you would think that I might have been smart enough to go back and get my corporate job back. But that was uh, early on. And what it, it meant for us, though, is we went from we're going to build this platform for all kinds of analytic apps to kind of narrowing in on one problem, which is consumer goods and pricing and retail. And that became the basis of G4 Analytics. And those 2000s were kind of a tricky time for software startups because companies were very risk averse going from raising a lot of money. And by the way, all our funders, they didn't walk away the next day. They said, we'll stick with you. But then they really kind of walked away over the next few months, right? So our funding kind of dried up and we kind of pulled a little bit of a hat out of our bag using consulting to fund this company. And so it took us a long time to get to what we really thought was a really good product, which is around pricing and retail. Nielsen bought that company in 2012. So that was uh, kind of the exit. I stayed there and ended up running uh, a big part of that business for five years. And then, you know, I thought this is great. And I took a CTO job for a retail uh, services company called Acosta, a $12 billion firm. And I watched the CEO change three times in a year. And that was enough to tell me, okay, it's time to go back to, you know, my roots. And so, you know, I left and I founded uh, Karen Corporation. And the previous CEO of uh, Nielsen, who was a friend of mine, who I you know, kind of worked for after selling the company, he introduced me to the people who had founded Agenity and said, hey, these guys kind of need your help. I uh, helped for a while. And then, well, then we bought the company. And here I am. You know, we closed the deal on March 10th, 
last year. So back into the, you know, everything right in the middle of crazy times, right? So, it seems right. like that's a pattern for you. <laughs> so we, let's hope I don't ever start another company, right? Because the world will fall apart, right? So, you know, we literally had this planned meeting for all the executives. We're all going to meet for a week of planning and then boom, lockdown happened. So here's the crazy thing. Here we sit 15 months later. I have a team that's grown from eight to 35 or so now. The team has never been in the same room together. Oh, wow. Mm. The entire growth of the company is all being done in this kind of virtual world. And you know what? It's actually worked great for us. Yeah. I mean, it's changed a lot of people's method of, of doing business. And it's actually, in a lot of ways, enhanced it for some who realized that they could do that. And uh, it's very interesting that you're, you know, starting a company at that period because it is such a chaotic thing to kind of change your situation and adjust to all of the stuff that's happening. And I'm interesting, like the state of analytics these days has become just enormous. Like there's so much big data is a understatement. It is terabytes of of content, like the the amount of data that is, is in these types of analytical things. Like, how do you manage that stuff? And what is like the current state of analytics in your opinion? Yeah. So, so first of all, you're right. Data has exploded and it's continuing to explode, right? And what's cool about that explosion is we've also found out, turns out almost everybody can use data, right? So, you know, kind of everybody's got a use for data in their process. So the first thing about that is there's massive amounts of data. So you got to have platforms that support it. So we can talk about that in a second. Second thing is, that because everybody needs it, there's no way a central team is ever going to keep up with the demands of everybody at the edge of a business, right? So the old model, which was a big centralized team putting all the data in a very centralized system, just doesn't work. So that's led to really two critical trends, which are part of where analytics is today. The first is the development of these new hyperscalable, highly elastic, cloud-based analytic platforms. So Snowflake and Redshift and BigQuery. And what's super cool about these platforms is, first of all, that the engineering work that's gone into handling the scale of data that these platforms can now handle is enormous. And it really is the state of the art, right? And there's four or five companies that have uh, these capabilities. The second thing is, because these platforms are now cloud resident, they're very scalable and elastic. And that's really critical because when I was working on big data warehouses, we had to buy the server capacity in advance. So we had to know the workloads that we were going to support, right? So like I'm going to do, you know, some kind of financial analysis thing and I got this many data records being produced every day and I'm going to process it in a certain way and I'm going to produce an output, right? Now, if you're my customer, Michael, and I do what you asked me to do at the beginning, great. But, you know, Eric works in the next department over and Eric says, you know, I really like what you've done there, but I need to do this other thing with that data. And I come back to you and say, well, that's great, Eric, but you didn't come to me when I bought the server capacity. So I capacity for you. And if I want to incorporate your needs in the system, first of all, you got to give me another couple million bucks to buy the hardware. And second of all, you got to wait for me to, you know, migrate and upgrade and, you know, and Eric is like, well, screw it. I'm going to go figure out how to do this on my desktop in Excel and whatever kind of <laughs> you know, tool that I can. Thus is the history of, of analytics. Challenge accepted. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so because these platforms are hyperscalable and because there's no way any central team can anticipate the needs of Eric, right? Because Eric's needs are changing. Not a chance. Yeah. Many no. have tried and many yeah. have failed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Eric's needs are changing all the time. He's buying companies and selling companies and starting new products. You know, who knows what he's doing, right? But it's always something different. It's happening all over the business. And, you know, the only way analytics can support that kind of a capability is with elastic, hyperscalable computing. And that's what these new platforms provide us today. So that's really cool. The other thing is that I, who may be the central data warehouse team, I can't keep up with the Eric's in this world. There's too many of them. You know, I sat down with the, uh, the chief technology officer, chief analytics officer, of big healthcare company about two months ago. And, you know, he said to me, look, I got 800 people on my analytics team. And people think, oh, it's a really big team, right? 
and it's a pretty big team. He says, you know what? But there are 17,000 people in our business doing analytics, right? And there's no way my team of 800 is ever going to keep up with what they're doing, right? So I need tools that empower those 17,000. But I just don't want to send them off loose to do whatever the heck. I want my 800 people to be leveraged by the 17,000 in some kind of way that they can collaborate. And that's, I think, where the state analytics is today. It's empowering the many Eric's of the world, the 17,000 or whatever the number is, because they're in every business. And uh, doing that in such a way that we can still take advantage of the engineering capabilities of the central team, but using these really cool new data platforms that give us all this flexibility that we never had in the past. We talked about the, the current state of analytics, but the, the future of analytics is, you know, it's ever growing. Like the concept of data of analytics in the past, like 20 years or so, it was, you know, you collect some data, you would be able to have a small subset of data that you could reference. But now we have, like, for example, you talked about Nielsen, like the Nielsen's whole business model was about having certain types of data and related to, you know, different types of industries. And we have this massive change over the past 15 years that analytics has become enormous monster in some people's opinions. And I, I'm curious, do you think that it's going to get even bigger or is there going to be some like kind of pivots where the industry might go into like a, you know, a split point where they would have different types of, of analytics rather than just being a, you know, a giant continuous growing type of situation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a number of things there. So first of all, if I knew exactly what was going to happen in the future, like I just sit around and bet on the stock market, by the way. Right. Because exactly. I, or some crypto. Yeah, I, I don't have that, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that insight. But I, I'll tell you what I, what I do see is that uh, it's changing all the time. Everybody has an opportunity to use data. And sometimes they want to use data in this kind of, you know, machine learning way where they're using it to, you know, kind of help predict or anticipate, you know, what's happening based on some historical data set. So, I think those kind of, let's call them intelligent analytics, are going to continue to grow. Um, you know, I'm not in the world that views that Darth Vader is going to use those analytics to take over the world, and it's going to be a Terminator moment. I see that more from an empowerment perspective, right? So as smart as Eric is sitting in the business, he can't possibly look at every record, a sale, to find a pattern, right? Well, it just depends on his attitude. Yeah, if, he, if he's willing to do it, he could do it, right? But a machine can, right? So, yeah. you know, what, what machine intelligence can do is, like, it loves lots of data, right? And it can look at every individual record and start to see patterns, and that becomes the basis of, you know, kind of intelligent advice that empowers better decisions by the Eric's. I think that's where I see AI the most. I mean, sometimes it's actually making the decision, but I think more often than not, it becomes a tool in a process that a human is still involved in. And there's reporting and there's operational analytics. It just, you know, data is everywhere. Data is going to continue to explode. And I think its use will be throughout the world. But I don't, I see analytics as the use of data to drive business outcomes. That's how I drive it, define analytics. So, you know, put that way, it, it kind of is everywhere, right? And when we think of it, we don't think of analytics as AI or, or BI, which is reporting or operational. We think it's all, hey, you're going to use data. Uh, we want to make it easy for you to use data. You're going to use it in a number of different ways, sometimes all of those ways at the same time. And I think that's going to you know, continue to, uh, to happen because I think that it's pretty clear that most business processes can be done better by the use of you know, history and data. I have a, a little bit of a maybe controversial question for you. And it's really interesting that we're talking about this, but there's there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the state of analytics in terms of the, some companies are heavily collecting data without permission. Sometimes they're collecting data that's unnecessary and things like that. How do you feel about the industry's like present form of some people's or some companies in the out in the world doing excessive data collection, like pinging cell towers and whatnot without permission and stuff like that. Do you do you think that the society's reaction to that is is, is reasonable or is it like an overreaction? What do you think about that? 
No, I think society's reaction is completely reasonable. I think that people should have knowledge of how whatever data they have is being used, and they should be in a position where they can permission it or not. And if uh, a provider uses that data in a way that benefits the user, consumer, great. They're going to allow them to do it. But if the collector is collecting the data unbeknownst to the user and then using it in some way that doesn't benefit them, I, hey, you know, that should be called out, right? So, and I think for the industry to prosper, we have to be open about it, right? Because, you know, people will uh, see us as uh, manipulating them. And, you know, that's not going to work to our advantage. If we are doing things that benefit people with the data, then they have every right to take their data back and, and they should know about it. So uh, that's, that's okay. my take. Great. I, I totally agree with that. Today's interview is sponsored by none other than Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to check out their amazing service. With security breaches a regular occurrence now, experts suggest using a unique password for every account. That could easily be over 200 passwords. How do you remember all of those? That's where a password manager comes in, and the password manager trusted by the Destination Linux network is Bitwarden. You can get started on Bitwarden for free or unlock a suite of additional tools for just $10 per year. That's right, per year. That $10 will give you all the free features, one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, vault health reports, two-factor code generation, and priority customer support. If you want to make the smart move, get a password manager and make that manager Bitwarden. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and thank you Bitwarden for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux Network. I just want to quickly pivot to a different topic because we talked about how you've started multiple companies and that sort of thing. And I think that as a person who's also been involved in creating multiple companies, I am very curious about your experience with getting started. And you've had uh, some interesting patterns of when you've done, of created certain companies, which we talked about previously. But I'm curious, like in terms of like a general sense of creating a business as well as creating a technology-related business, what do you think are like the pros and cons, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that sort of stuff? How do you feel about people wanting to get into the space of entrepreneurship? So first of all, I mean, it's been a great journey for me, right? And if you're possessed by ideas or by a problem that you really want to solve, then it's a great path, right? If you're doing it just to make a buck, it's a pretty perilous path, right? And you'll have, if you stick with it long enough, you'll succeed, uh, but not always, right? So I've, there's at least two times I can think of, I've gone months in without taking a salary, right? And if you don't have stomach for that level of risk, that's uh, not a good thing. And then frankly, I had a company where I had done that and uh, we were on a path that I thought was be successful. And I had to sign for my house. Okay. I mean, that is, uh, you know, the kind of thing that you kind of have to be prepared to do, right? Because if you've got a business and you believe in it, when times are tough, that's not the time other people are going to invest in your business if you're not investing in it yourself. So, you know, kind of, we teach everybody about financial management. We say, Spread your risk, right? Well, an entrepreneur has to be prepared to double down on the one thing that they are doing, right? And put, you know, you got to be prepared to put all in on 18 red, right? <laughs> and, you know, 18 red is yourself, right? And if you're, you know, kind of not everybody's prepared for that. And if you're not prepared, that's fine. In which case, I would say, you know, don't be an entrepreneur, right? Because, you know, there are the Googles of the world that, like, as far as we can tell, when Sergey and Bryn, you know, got out of the dorm room, it's been just straight up from there, right? Good for them. That's so statistically insignificant as a percentage of companies that it's not even worth talking about, right? Uh, it, most of us have those moments where you have to double down. So that's that's a big part of it. It's a very interesting thing you said about, you know, your reaction to it is to make sure that, you know, when people like a lot of times you'll see people doing like motivational speakers when, when they're talking about becoming an entrepreneur, they put the, 
the starry eyed approach to it and don't be like realist about it. So I appreciate your responses to that because uh, I just a few days ago had some, I had a, a conversation with some, someone who was trying to be an entrepreneur, but wasn't really in it for the, the thing they were doing. They weren't passionate about the, the company they wanted to do. All they wanted was it for the money. And it's like, well, that's, that's something you should go into like, you know, corporate America or something like that where you're, working for the paycheck and that's fine if that's your thing but if you want to be an entrepreneur that's going to end very badly because you don't have the passion and it's that's very interesting that you said that because it's it completely falls along with my experience because I've been doing I've worked on multiple companies and sometimes I wasn't passionate about it and I had to depart from said companies because I needed to focus on the thing that I do want to do which is why I founded this network and I think there's a lot of uh, great points that you made. But I'm curious, what do you think is, you know, we talked about like the passion of being a way to give a foundation for your, the concept of being an entrepreneur. What do you think are the skills necessary for doing it? Do you think having a business acumen or, you know, technical acumen, what do you think is like the, the basis for what makes a good entrepreneur? I think a lot of the culture about entrepreneurship is about the brilliant idea person, right? So we think like Steve Jobs, you know, he had the great idea and that was the foundation of his business. I actually think that where business is today is that we should think about not the idea, which is a solution to a problem, but focus on the problem. I think the key to successful business is identifying a group of people or companies you want to serve. Let's call that the market. And it's about identifying some value you want to create for them. That's the opportunity. And if you know the market and the value, and that's your focus, your business, then that's the basis of great business. Because actually how you deliver that value, turns out best way to deliver that value is to experiment, test and learn. I'm going to try this. It didn't work. I'm going to try that. It didn't work. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to iterate on it. and I'm going to get it right eventually, right? So rarely is the big idea, you know, the foundation of a business. The big value, the North Star, I'm going to create this value. That's the way I think that, you know, kind of is critical. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of really good writing about kind of entrepreneurship. You said passion. I totally agree with you. I think, and I also think it's, look, if you don't have, a clear view on a bunch of a market, let's call them people or companies that you want to serve and value that you want to create, right? You know, don't bother, right? Or at least don't bother talking to me about it, right? Because that to me is what it's about, right? Is about creating value. And then because, and once you know what value you're kind of creating, if you're willing to stick with it long enough, almost everything can be approved, right? You know, we can always deliver more value if we're focused on the value. You might not get it right initially, but if you stick with it, you you know, you kind of will. So maybe stubbornness, stick to it in this, focus on the value, passion. Um, you know, those are, I think, a critical skills. Business, humor, you better know a little bit about money and accounting. But I would say the next thing after all that is people skills, right? Because whatever you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know. And uh, you better be able to find people who know it and motivate them to come work for you. <laughs> gaps, right? Because if you can't do that, you're kind of hosed. That's a good point. So we, we have a business problem that we've identified. We have an idea of how to fix that problem. We're passionate about it. We've started our business. We're on the right track. One of the problems with startup life, with being an entrepreneur, especially if you're kind of starting on your own or with a very small team, is that is your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You wake up and you go to bed thinking about it. You you toss and turn at night because you got to make the sale or you got to get this funding approved. I mean, it it really can consume your entire life. You definitely have to have a certain set of of mental health skills to kind of compartmentalize. Sure. So, I mean, especially with the pandemic last year and with work life balance being so out of whack, how have you found ways to unplug to set to set work aside and and enjoy a hobby or family? How do you how do you unplug? Yeah, so interesting question, right? So, I live in Steamboat, Colorado, up in the mountains, and no, oh, it's a beautiful area. I had a place here for five years, and I've lived here permanently since just before the pandemic struck. It's pretty darn lucky. <laughs> And uh, for me, 
you know, kind of, I, you know, I walk, I ski, I hike, I, you know, do all these things. And partly I do them because I can't sit still if I'm not doing them. And it turns out I do all my best thinking when I'm out moving like that, right? So I found a way to have that incorporated into, you know, my world, my ability to have balance. Because you're right, it is a great challenge. And, you know, if you go talk to a bunch of uh, VCs, particularly, you know, kind of Silicon Valley VCs, their model is to fund teams of, you know, young people who have no life, right? And, uh, and that they can just go do this thing, you know, 100% of the time. It's not compartmentalized because there's only one compartment, right? You know, it's, uh, it's called the business and they all live in the same house and they, you know, it's that really is how they do it. I don't know. I mean, I guess it works for them, right? The model, you know, and I've been lucky because, I, you know, I kind of did that at the beginning, but not quite like that. I was successful enough to have, you know, kind of found enough people around me who are kind of, you know, supportive of what I'm doing. And so, like now with, with Agenity and the founding of Karen, I had a board of directors ready-made. I had a set of advisors. I had people willing to go without work to start this company up just because we all sat down together and we kind of said, okay, we want to work on a problem we all understand. We want to work with people we like. That turned out to be all the people in the room. We already knew how we worked together. So if you're lucky and maybe you do something right, you develop a trusted network, right, that will help you in this process because it's, it's you know, it is a team sport. You need people on your team. You know, you have to find balance. If you're young enough and really willing to do the, the classic Silicon Valley VC thing and you're going to live in a house in Palo Alto with six other people, you know, more power to you, right? You know, at my stage of the game, that's not what I'm doing, right? So <laughs> uh, sure. it's uh, partly due to previous success, I guess. Yeah, I, when I first got into doing being an entrepreneur, it was, it was basically, you know, an 80-hour work week kind of thing you know, double up the, the the typical and just grind as much as possible. And then I realized that was only going to work for so long. And I started to get, you know, burnt out pretty quickly. Well, it took a couple of years, but it, it still happened. At that point, I decided to pivot a lot and try to balance it. I'm still working on the balance, but at least I know I need to do it. There's that. Yeah, if you get that figured out, let me know. Because I'm not sure. I think <laughs> that's, a, that's a lifelong journey, right? Is to find balance. Yeah, exactly. I even started doing like meditation and stuff, which is nice because I've, you know, there's a lot of people who are in the entrepreneurial world say that meditation is good for you and that sort of stuff. So it's, it's really hard to turn off the brain, but I'm working on it. <laughs> that's my hike in the mountains, right? That's how yes, exactly. Turn things down. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way. To, I was thinking about getting like a, a bicycle or whatever and just riding around the trails and whatnot, trying to do it for the same kind of thing. Um, I'm curious. Like you know, we've talked about how you're you structured your company based on like the people you're doing the work with and that sort of stuff. How important do you think it is to have the team behind you? We already talked about how you find people who fit the thing that you don't know. You know, how important is it to you to find people who you enjoy spending time with? Because I would assume that that is the one of the most important things. Doing the job is one thing, but if they do the job and they unfortunately, maybe they annoy you and sort of stuff. Is it worth having the high quality work versus making sure that the person is, you know, you have a cohesive fit sort of thing? I'm not sure that I've ever seen a high performance team where people didn't get along. They don't necessarily have to be best buddies. In fact, but, but all the high performance teams I've been involved in, they actually have, you know, people actually really like spending time with each other. That's not to say there's not conflict, right? So I always say that innovation is conflict, right? It's conflict between an old idea and a new idea. And we're just going to build a constructive approach to conflict into our business. And if there's somebody you don't like for whatever reason, you know, then you've got to address that. If you do address it, you'll get better. But I think that I think most people are willing to like just about anybody. This is going to sound a little crazy if they perform up to the expectations, right? So one of the key things about a high-performance team is, first of all, they have to have a clear goal. They have to know what their, you know, what position they play. Uh, they have to trust the other people in the other positions, and they have to have accountability to everybody on the team. So as soon as 
somebody on the team isn't accountable, they're not pulling their weight, well, that becomes a problem, right? So a really good team kind of polices itself. And, you know, as a leader, you have to be willing to let them do that because, you know, you'll find that you'll lose your highest performing people if you don't address the underperforming parts of a team. But I think that if you have a clear vision, if everybody knows their role on the team, which is, I guess, that's really important to a leader is have a clear vision, North Star, have everybody understand their roles, and then have clear accountability. So you have accountability and responsibility that go together. Then I actually think, and you have a mechanism for dealing with conflict. Then I think that is the recipe for a really good team. And I think that people of very different walks of life can participate in a team like that because you're going to work through whatever your conflict is and you're going to develop trust because there is accountability to results. I was talking to, we're in the middle of raising a round right now. And several of the investors that I've talked to, they're, you know, they asked me the question, well, what's your exit strategy? And I'm like, well, if we're really successful, you know, we go public. I don't know that that's highly likely, but, you know, the really great companies in our space, that's what they do. You know, the next step down might be that, that there's lots of adjacent companies that would someday acquire us. And um, there's a couple other routes within that. I said, but look, nobody here is out to flip it, right? We like what we're doing and we kind of like each other, right? And uh, we like doing this work together. You know, I don't think that comes from accident. I think that comes from that kind of the right structure for success. You mentioned starting a company just to flip it. That seems to be a growing trend in technology. Come up with some cool idea, get some get some publicity and get the big paycheck and walk out the door. Do you think that's kind of tainted the the startup culture or or somehow maybe degraded? I think it works very infrequently, right? So yeah, people are gonna try all kinds of crazy things. It's back to you know to to Mike your earlier point that what about this trust for data? People do things that don't make sense. And maybe this is where I'm an idealist, but I think that those patterns get flushed out because they're not successful patterns in the long run. In the short run, you know, you're going to have some examples of that that are going to look super successful and people are going to think, well, that's the way to do it. But I think in the long run, it, it rarely works that way. And I think that most successful businesses are focused on creating some value. And I'll tell you what's, what I really like is, you know, kind of, I don't know whether it's the neighborhood plumbing company or heating and cooling company. I love these little small businesses that, uh, you know, where some guy and his wife started this business and they just super care about this little group of customers they're servicing. And, and every time I see some little business like that, and here in Steamboat, there's a bunch of those, you think that's what makes a market economy so effective, right? Is It's just a great life. If you can actually deliver value to people, I mean, you know, what else can you really ask for? Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's starting an open source project or starting a technology startup like like what you've done, there's a lot of shared skill sets. There's a lot of similarities in processes and time and the time that's required to do so. So whether it's starting a company or starting a project of the scale of, of what an open source project can scale to, what kind of lessons would you have for, for people who, who have the right problem that they've identified, who have the passion to fix it, who have an idea on how to fix it, maybe a team of a few people around them? They've got all the necessary pieces. So from your experience, what lessons have you learned that you'd like to share with, with someone who's getting ready to make that leap? That's a good question, right? Because I think you start with what's that back to the value you're creating, right? And I think that the, one of the biggest things we've learned in software and product development is there isn't necessarily one answer. And you need to find a mechanism to test and learn and iterate Till you get to a point where the market tells you you have a product that's going to, you know, that's going to work, right? Product market fit in the terminology of the industry, right? So I like to say the speed of iteration is the speed of learning. And there is no such thing as a requirement, only a hypothesis. Um, so if you start with, I only have a hypothesis and the faster I can iterate, the faster I can learn and the faster I can learn the sooner I can get to signals that I've got a solution, well, that's a pattern that whether you're open source or commercial, you know, I think works, right? And I think there's, and by the way, the entirety of product thinking and software development wasn't there until the past 15 years. So 
you know, if you look at, you know, kind of the lean startup and the lean movement, or you take, uh, you know, Marty Kagan and the product, uh, Silicon Valley product group and dual track agile, there's this whole world of thinking about that kind of concept. The idea of, look, I got to get to something that I can prove value as quickly as I can, but I'm going to do it not by going off and building the perfect answer. I'm going to assume that I've got some stuff right and some stuff wrong. And I'm never going to, you know, like I really love this. Everything is a hypothesis, right? Because if you're hypothesis driven, you're data driven. As a data geek, who doesn't love that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it kind of reminds me of this, uh, what you're saying about whether you have the right answer, the perfect answer, just, you know, try to, to, to create the thing that you're wanting to create. It kind of reminds me of this uh, phrase of business where you, you try to get it out there and then perfect it after the fact. And they refer, refer to it as a ready, fire, aim. Yeah, I think it, it goes along the lines of what you're talking about of having sure you making sure that you have the the right pieces together and then push forward rather than trying to get the perfect solution before you start because you're probably never going to find that perfect solution. Yeah, you, one of my favorite people is Marty Kagan. He's written inspired, you know, how to create products customers love. And Marty talks about kind of the old traditional waterfall way. I've got this perfect answer and like, I'm going to go out and write a requirements document and I pass it over design and then they're going to go build it piece by piece to a piece. And then I'm going to, you know, go through a testing process and then I'm going to deliver it. And that's like, God knows how long you just took doing that. And that's one iteration cycle. If you got it wrong, oh boy, that's a very expensive cycle, right? So if you can find a way to get to smaller increments and test them and iterate on them, then uh, you can get there much better. There is a trick to that, though, that this is something I kind of struggle with. And frankly, I talk to my team about all the time. They're, you know, totally bought into this idea. And so they want to get stuff out there, right? You know, I want to get it out there. I want to see how users respond to it. Then I want to, you know, kind of go back. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But if you put something out there that just doesn't work, then when you get it right, you may have lost some portion of your user base who thinks these guys are idiots. They put out stuff that doesn't work, right? So there's some kind of middle ground there. You've got to iterate, but you've got to, you know, deliver some quality from the beginning. And then, and if you do put stuff out there that just fundamentally has got problems in it, you better be prepared to iterate quickly, right? So if you're able to respond days or hours or weeks, you know, kind of versus months or quarters, the market's going to be more forgiving to stuff that is not quite right. You know, so there's a balance there that has to be struck. And I would always recommend people keep that in mind. That's interesting. I have a probably an odd question for you, but I'm curious, what, what do you have any like uh, lessons learned or, or recommendations or suggestions for someone who is already an entrepreneur that we, because we've been talking about making startups. What about people who are already in that, that realm and they've already got a company that's been around for a couple of years, but they feel a little bit stagnant that they feel like they're not growing as fast as they, they feel like they should be. Do you have any suggestions about how they could go, they could maybe pivot in some way, or do you think that it's a, uh, you know, just keep pushing forward? Or is there some other kind of a tactic that someone in that situation could do? I mean, that's a really, you know, a good question. A tricky one is like when to pivot and when to stick it out, right? You know, I'm not sure that there's a formula for that. There's a basic kind of thing. Some of the things that you see in stagnation, right? It's uh, maybe you have the basis of something that's an idea that's going to create value. But when you get to a point where you realize what we're working on, it just can't create the value that we want to create, right? So that's a signal that you should probably be thinking about pivoting, right? And then the other signal, the other place to look for a signal that you need to think about pivoting is that even if you have something that creates value, the cost and effort of getting it into customers' hands in a way that they'll pay for it is just too high for its value, right? That's a signal. And related to that signal would be a secondary one, which goes to how long are they going to need to keep using it, right? So if you sell something that's a one-off thing, like there, there's a software company that I was dealing talking to recently who had some cool ideas, but their entire product was to help companies convert from platform A to platform B. And I thought, well, that's great. It's really cool. But what happens when they're done, right? They're going to throw your product out, right? So that's your value is you know, conversion from platform A to platform B. And even if you deliver that value, 
you have a really hard time capturing enough value for the cost of getting those customers, right? So the great thing about subscription software like what we have is if you do create value, people keep using it. They're going to use it over and over again. So we really super care about how much they use it and that they're getting value of it. So they keep using it, right? So, and right now we're sitting at a renewal rate of like 98%. So we feel pretty darn good about it, right? That allows you to flip how much that, you know, kind of upfront cost is. But I would say that there's some mathematical formula about the cost of acquiring companies to amount of value you're creating, what you can price. And if you can't create a formula that works, that you should really think about. And the second is, is maybe the first one really was if whatever idea you're after, you just can't find a way to create the value you're trying to create, then it's time to think about, you know, kind of pivoting. So it's a tricky thing for, you know, for companies. I mean, you could say Agenity pivoted twice before I acquired them, which I guess you kind of call that the third pivot. We're clearly not going to pivot because it's working, right? So Thank goodness for that. The company G4 Analytics, which I founded back to the early days, and we pivoted. I think that that you know that happens, right? That's awesome. I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show and chatting with us today. I think there's a lot of uh, good bits of, of of wisdom in here for folks that want to start a project or start their own company. Before we wrap up, is there anywhere you'd like to send folks to to get more of of Rick Hall? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, agenity.com, uh, that's their website. Uh, we're also, you know, kind of heavily on, on LinkedIn. You know, go check us out. Like our model is uh, is kind of free trial and expand, right? So download the product for free, trial it. If you like it, pay for it. If you don't, tell us why you didn't. If you can, you know, we're always trying to learn from that. And if you're a business analyst trying to crunch big data, that's a we hope you'll give us a shout. I'm also on LinkedIn and, you know, I've had a lot of good people help me over the years. I'm always interested in helping other entrepreneurs. So if I can be of any help, you know, I tell people, hey, go find me on LinkedIn, you know, reach out and I'll either try to give you advice or connect you with somebody who can. That's awesome. I, I appreciate you letting us pick your brain about it. I, as an entrepreneur myself, I was, I'm very thankful that you came on the show so we could talk about it. And I'm very thankful that Eric asked me to be on it because he was like, hey, you, hey, I know it's last minute. Was like, we're going to talk about being an entrepreneur. Uh, yeah, I'm in for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to pseudo.show slash discuss. If you would like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at pseudo show podcast. If you want to check out some more awesome content from all the open sorcerers of the Destination Linux network, you can check it out by going to destinationlinux.network. Brandon will be back with us in our next episode. You can catch him on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or at his website, open-tech.net. And Michael, where should folks go to find you? Well, they can go to destinationlinux.network and find all of the shows that I'm on. We got Twill, we got Destination Linux, Hardware Addicts, Twill as in This Week in Linux, for those who don't know. But there's a, a lot of great content over there. I know I already sort of mention that plugged it a little bit but there's a lot of great stuff and i happen to be on a a few of them so you can check those out destinationlinux.network and also you'll find youtube channels there as well as many other things and hopefully you'll enjoy all the great content that we got it's all right i'll, I'll let you i'll let you plug your, your stuff in the network again just because uh you brought extra credit with you today you wore your pseudo show shirt that's right that's right i gotta represent so yeah, if, if you want to get your own pseudo mug or shirts, uh, just head on over to pseudo.show slash swag. And Michael's been doing a great job of adding more swag and different items for you to get to show off your pseudo love. And of course, you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. Remember, the pseudo show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time. Wait, wasn't that my, that was my line. No, that was my line. Because I, it's my, I yeah, make my, my show. But, oh, right. Ha, 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 ha.